how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Zechariah, part two. Well, now we stopped studying Zechariah uh, in the first half, and we need to go back to that just to pick up the final prophecy that he gave to the present problems of Israel, the same problems that Haggai had faced, Zechariah now faced. But this was an interesting question which was brought to him uh, some two years after he gave these encouraging pictures and crowned the priest Joshua as king. Two years later, a group of people came from up north, came from a place called Bethel. Now this is very significant. It means that within two years they'd begun to spread out over the old country and were re-establishing other towns than Jerusalem. So Bethel was now at least a small hamlet again. And the people came down from Bethel seeking guidance about their religious life. And they came to a priest, but they found a prophet. And the question concerned two practices, fasting and feasting. Because these were the two practices as part of their religion. There were times when they went without food and times when they really had a good, a good meal together. Fasting and feasting both have a place. Jesus did both. But uh, they came and they said, we want to ask first of all about the fasts we're regularly observing. And of course they had two a year in the fifth month and the seventh. And these were fasts to remember how Jerusalem had been destroyed, to mourn for the loss of the city. And the question was very simple. These two fasts in the fifth and the seventh month, how much longer are we supposed to go on doing this? Because, I mean, we've got Jerusalem back again, so why go on mourning? It's the kind of question that gets asked every November in this country. How much longer do we mourn the dead of two world wars? Especially since most of the immediate relatives are now dead themselves. How much longer do we go on mourning over disasters in the past? And it's a relevant question so you can understand it. So they said, how much longer do we go on fasting? And Zechariah's answer was quite interesting. He said, well, actually, he said, fasting is really a rather self-centered thing. It's because you pity yourselves. It's because you're sorry for yourself. You're sorry you didn't leave your sins alone. You're not really mourning for your sins. You're mourning for yourselves because of the penalty your sins brought you. He said, the kind of fast that God would like now, and here he quotes Isaiah. Zechariah obviously studied the other prophets, he frequently quotes them, but it goes back to Isaiah 58, what we call 58, where Isaiah said, this is the kind of fast you should have, and that's to fast from dishonesty and to fast from cruelty and to be generous and kind and help the helpless and succour the needy. That's the kind of fast that God really wants, not doing without food, but doing without uh, insensitivity to need. And uh, perhaps that's got a relevant word for those who practice Lent still. Not so much doing without something as, as doing without sin and therefore being free to serve other people free of self, that's what you should fast from yourselves. 
and give yourselves to others? It's an interesting answer because he said it's precisely for these reasons that the exile came. It was because you became so selfish and so greedy instead of so generous and so kind. And so if you really want to remember all that properly, he said do it by not doing the things they did, not just going through a token fast from food. And then the next question they had was, what about the feasts? There had been certain festivals which had been kept up in the exile, but there were more holidays than holy days actually. Uh, there were celebrations. And once again, they, they actually had them in the fourth, fifth, seventh and tenth months. So they had two fasts a year in exile and four feasts a year in exile and they're really saying, now we've got back home, what do we do about the fasts and what do we do about the feasts? that had started during that exile. And uh, again he says, your feasts are really far too self-centred. You're just having a good, good time, food, friendship and fun. He said, how about making them a celebration of God? Make them holy days instead of holidays. And really be thankful that God has brought you back to the land and praise him. Don't just have a holiday or a bank holiday, but have a celebration of the fact that God has been faithful to you, that you're back in the holy mountain, that the streets are full of young people and elderly people again, and rejoice that God is going to bring more back and repopulate the whole land. That's what you should be doing with your feasts. So, he says, really, change from weeping to laughter, change from sorrow to joy. It's time to celebrate, but celebrate with God at the centre. So he gives them guidance. And it's then that he says you need to be ready for the fact that many more people are going to come to you Jews because you know God. He's giving them a missionary outlook. He's saying there'll come a time when people will come and seize the skirt of one Jew and say, tell us about your God. You should be ready for that. I remember once I was sitting in uh, Jerusalem with an elderly Jewish man and I was trying to talk to him about his God and his Messiah. And I was saying, you know, you've got it all. We had to get it all from you. We wouldn't know God but for you Jews. Our Bible is a Jewish book. Our Saviour is a Jew. We owe it all to you. And I didn't realise, but as I talked to him, I'd got hold of his trousers. <laughs> and I'd got hold of and I was pulling them as I said, and I said, you know, you've got everything. And I suddenly remembered Zechariah's word about many Gentiles will come and seize the clothes of a Jew and say, we got it from you. <laughs> Share it with us. And uh, that's it. Well, now that's the end of the first half, which is relatively straightforward, may I warn you. <laughs> the second half does get complicated because now he's turning away from the present situation, he's looking into the distant future. And what he says in bits and pieces now could fit any time centuries ahead. And it's not in any particular order, it's like a jigsaw box. When you first open a box of a jigsaw puzzle, there are all little bits and pieces, and some are red and some are green, some are blue, and you don't know where they fit. And without a picture on the lid, you're really lost. Now, I must admit, I love jigsaws, but I always cheat. I prop up the box lid and I take a piece of red and I go, 
Now that is cheating. A proper jigsaw puzzle, you don't do that. You do it without the picture. And that's what we've got to do with Zechariah. We don't have the picture. Actually we do. The picture's in Revelation. It's interesting, Hebrews 1.1 in the New Testament says that God spoke to our fathers in the olden times through the prophets in bits and pieces, but now he has spoken to us through his Son. Meaning, we've now got the picture on the lid. We can now begin to fit all these pieces together and know how it's all going to turn out. And that is why the book of Revelation quotes Zechariah again and again and again. And the book of Revelation begins to fit these pictures, these pieces into the picture of the distant future or what we've come to call the end times, a time when history reaches its countdown. And it is Jesus who will break the seals on the scroll of the countdown of history. And so we're in a great advantage to the Jews who read this book, who only see the bits and pieces and don't know how they fit together. Even so, it's not easy. There's a distinct change in style and content. There is now some poetry. It's all been prose so far, but there's a bit of poetry now. No mention of the contemporary situation now. There's no mention here of the temple or Joshua or Zerubbabel. No visions. Even God's name changes. Throughout the first half of the book, God has been the Lord of hosts or Yahweh of heaven's armies. But now he's just Yahweh. That's a distinct change. Uh, it's quite a different sort of feel, so different that some scholars say it must have been someone else who wrote this. But why couldn't Zechariah change? Some scholars are very rigid in their ideas. They love taking a pair of scissors to the Bible. In fact, just as Manasseh cut the poor prophet Isaiah in half, the scholars keep cutting his book in half. They say it's by two different Isaiahs or even three. And they take Zechariah and they cut that in half and say, Zechariah wrote the first bit, the second bit's so different. But in fact, the second bit is different because God gave it to him in a different way. And these are not dated, so we don't know when he gave it to them, maybe years later. Well now, the content, as I've said, is looking into the future and now they are called oracles. Don't wonder if you notice that in your Bible, an oracle. The word actually is heavy, weighty, but it's usually translated oracle into English. I don't think that really conveys it. It's a heavy burden. There's something heavy coming now. And uh, if you've been given a heavy burden by the Lord, you know what I'm talking about. When something is just heavy on your heart until you share it, and once you've shared it, it lightens. You know when the burden is delivered, but it's, it's heavy and it weighs on your mind and heart until you've done something with it. Well, these came as two great burdens, two heavy messages, just the two. One of them is covered by chapters 9 to 11 and the other by 12 to 14, and they are very different. So let's uh, begin to look at them and see what we can get out of them. I think the only way really is to study each separate piece, see what it says, and then as God enables us through reading Revelation and the New Testament, we'll gradually be, begin to fit the pieces into the overall picture of the end times. In chapters 9 to 11, the focus is on the people of Israel. It is very much a national future picture that he's seeing, the picture of national restoration. And uh, if anything, 
This picture precedes the later one, so it's sooner rather than later, and what comes in the next section is later rather than sooner, but we can't date them. There are no dates, no indication as to when these things happen, or even if they're in the right order, they may not be. So all we can do is look at each piece of the picture. So we're looking here at the future of Israel and national restoration. And there are one, two, three, four, five, six pictures that are, that are part of this future. You can't relate them to each other. The first is that their enemies will be vanquished, that all those who have come against Jerusalem will be dealt with by God. He will not allow Jerusalem ever to be wiped off the map. It's his city. It's where he put his name. Therefore, I can guarantee that even if uh, New York and Beijing and Washington, D.C. and New Delhi and all of those cities are wiped off the map, Jerusalem will still be there. God will vanquish their enemies and there will always be Jewish survivors to be integrated into the land. He even says some Philistines will join you. And since modern-day Palestinians call themselves descendants of the Philistines, it's an intriguing promise. And there will come a day when never again will an oppressor run over my people. Now that day hasn't come yet, but there will come a day when never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for I am keeping watch. Now it's just a piece of the picture, and we don't know what date that will be fulfilled, but it's a promise of God, and God keeps his promises even if he waits centuries to do so. The second picture is a picture of a king of peace riding to Jerusalem on a donkey. And here again is a piece of the picture. We know when this fits the picture because Jesus did exactly that. The tragedy is, of course, that when Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, they didn't notice the donkey. And they thought he was riding on a donkey because he couldn't get a horse. And they never got the message. Because when Jesus rode in on a donkey and they waved their palms and threw their coats down, they were shouting, Hoshana, Hoshana. And we think that's a kind of heavenly hello, you know, Hosanna. It's nothing of the kind. It means, liberate us now, set us free now. It's, it's a cry of people who've been oppressed for centuries, who see political autonomy coming near, who see freedom coming. It's the cry of freedom fighters. Hoshana! And they call him Son of David. Hoshana, Son of David, set us free! But he wasn't coming to fight for them. Had he wanted to come and fight for their liberation, he'd have ridden a horse, as he will do at his second coming. When Israel sees him the next time, he will be on a horse, not a donkey. But he came first as the Prince of Peace on a donkey. And they got the biggest shock in their lives when he went through the gate in Jerusalem and turned left instead of right. And he grabbed a whip. And when they saw him do that, they thought he's going to whip the Romans out of town. But he turned left into the temple instead of right into the fortress Antonio where the Roman soldiers were based. 
And the crowd fell silent. And then he whipped Jews out of God's temple. I am not surprised that a few days later they said, you can crucify that man. We'll have this freedom fighter here. And the irony of history is that that other freedom fighter they chose had a most unusual name. His name was Jesus Bar Abbas, which means Jesus, Son of the Father. And on that day there were two men, both called Jesus, Son of the Father. And Pilate said, which Jesus, Son of the Father, do you want? The man who won't fight for you or the man who will? And they said, we'll have the fighter. Do you understand now what was happening? It was the sheer disappointment when he rode in on a donkey and attacked not Romans but Jews. That really, if you disappoint a crowd, they will quickly turn right against you. If you don't give a crowd what, you want, what they want and fulfill the hopes they build up in you, you are heading for trouble. And that's why Jesus was crucified a few days later after he'd been welcomed with palms and hoshana, He's coming to fight for our liberation at last. Well, he will come on a horse and liberate Israel. <coughs> Not yet. So here's this little piece of the jigsaw. And it says that he will bring righteousness and peace, shalom, harmony, and he will have dominion from sea to sea. There's an interesting sidelight on that. Another text that's been taken out of context and misused here from Canada. And Canada is called the Dominion of Canada. And do you know why? Because of this text in Zechariah. Because it stretches from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And so it's called the Dominion from sea to sea. It's the only country in the world that's called the Dominion of Canada. And it's because of this. But I'm quite sure Zechariah was not thinking of Canada. <laughs> He was thinking of Jesus coming and reigning from sea to sea. <laughs> now the next picture is of the mighty God. Here we have it. Here we have a picture of the Lord fighting for them, of appearing visibly. It's a contradiction to coming in peace now. We have here a Lord who will come for his flock and be a good shepherd to them unlike the bad shepherds they've had. And it says, his people will sparkle like jewels in his crown. There's a lovely phrase there. Now comes a bit of a shock. This one talks about Greece. And it was going to be centuries before the Greeks came and conquered this land. And that dreadful man Antiochus Epiphanes, who went into the temple, raised the statue of Zeus, slaughtered a pig on the altar, and filled the vestries with prostitutes. It was their worst time of all, and it lasted exactly three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, which is exactly the period predicted of Antichrist in the New Testament. Under Antiochus Epiphanes, the Jews suffered what the world will suffer, what Christians will suffer under Antichrist. Intriguing that Greece should be predicted in that third little piece of the picture. Now we can fit it in, but what they made of it at the time I do not know. The next picture is of gathered people of the diaspora reversed, of the dispersion brought home. 
and Jews brought from every land back to this land. Do you know that present-day Israel, people have come from 70 nations? Jews have come from 70 nations back to Israel today and they've brought the music of 70 nations and the dances of 70 nations. The culture of Israel is unique today. It's a combination. The Yemen Jews brought some of their best dances and the culture of Israel, the treasures of the nations have been brought even to this Jerusalem. And uh, when we go there, we'll take you to a symphony concerts and you'll hear the best music in the world. And this is a picture of the gathered people coming home and there will not be enough room for them, Zechariah says. All those who come home. It's a little piece that we can now fit in, but it was just a little glimpse of the future then. And it even says that a highway will be built between Egypt and Assyria. Well, uh, Isaiah had said this, but here we have Egypt and Assyria, which today would be Egypt and Iraq, brought into the picture somehow. Where that piece is going to fit in is your guess, good as mine, except that Egypt has helped to bring peace. Well, the next picture is a puzzling one. It's of all their neighbours being deforested, all the trees being cut down in the Middle East. The cedars of Lebanon, the oaks of Transjordan or Bashan, and even the jungle of Jordan. Well, the jungle of Jordan is largely gone. And the cedars of Lebanon, there's only one little patch of them left, about a dozen or so trees on one hill. And the oaks of Bashan have gone. Now, I'm not sure why this picture was shown. It's a little piece of the puzzle. That's what it is. The next picture is of worthless shepherds. It's a very strange thing, but here we have an acted parable. Zechariah takes a job as a foreman shepherd and has to sack three shepherds for not looking after the sheep. And they throw their wages back at him, 30 pieces of silver. And the little verse comes, when the shepherd is smitten, the sheep are scattered. Now once again, we've got little bits of picture and yet you begin to see where they fit in when you read the Gospels, don't you? When Judas throws his 30 pieces of silver back into the temple because he was a bad shepherd. He'd been a preacher and a healer. When Jesus said, the shepherd has been smitten and the sheep are scattered. He knew all these stories, all these pictures, and he was using them. Well, those are the first ones. They're all concerned with Israel and the little pieces, little glimpses, just a word here, a sentence there and a picture there. And somehow looking back, we begin to see how it was all glimpses of the future. But now the the whole scene broadens out. It's now international. We're looking at the world now. We're looking at things that are going to happen on an international basis. And yet, Jerusalem is now at the heart of it all. Twenty-one times we find the name Jerusalem in this section. You don't find it here. Isn't that interesting? It's as if Jerusalem is seen now as the focus of the international future, as indeed it will be. That's where the United Nations headquarters will have to be moved to. Here's a picture of Zion as the centre of world government. And we're looking way into the future. 
Let's just look at some of the words that are frequently mentioned in this last half. Jerusalem is mentioned 21 times. Therefore, it's going to be a very, very significant city in the end times. The second word that I want you to notice, a total of 18 times, is the word day. It hasn't appeared anywhere here, but now it's all the way through. The day, the day of the Lord, on that day, the day known to the Lord, the day, the day, the day. And that word occurs frequently in the New Testament. Jesus used it an awful lot, on that day. Now this day is not a 24-hour day. The, the Hebrew word yom or day can mean anything from a 24-hour period to a whole era. For example, well we use it the same way in English, the word day. If I say the day of the horse and, tract, uh, uh, horse and cart has gone and the day of the tractor has come, I'm not talking about 24-hour days at all. You understand what I mean? Every dog has its day, <laughs> but a dog with a sore tail has a weekend. <laughs> but I'm, I'm using the word day there, you see, in quite a different way. I'm losing it quite, using it quite loosely. A day meaning an era. And really the day of the Lord means man has had his day. Now the Lord is having his day. Do you see? It's a whole era. It's not 24 hours. It's the day of the Lord. It's his day now. We've had our day, but now he has his day. Exciting phrase. There will come the day of the Lord and the world will see it's his day now. And the day of man's pride and greed is over. And the day of God's holiness is here. Only one part is poetry and the word day doesn't come in that little bit of poem, interestingly enough. Now let's look at the different pieces. Again, they're pieces of a jigsaw. The first is a picture of an international United Nations force attacking Jerusalem. An army gathered from the entire nations of the world that is sent to the Middle East. Now that hasn't happened yet but it's a piece of the jigsaw. Jerusalem has yet to be attacked in that way. So the troubles of Israel are not over, not by a long way, believe me. But we, sh we may live to see this United Nations force sent to attack the Jews. They have very few friends left at the United Nations, very few. And America, her major friend, is now beginning to turn against Israel. The United Nations are willing to send an international force anywhere to do what they feel is necessary. I can see it happening, but I don't think we can fit this into the picture yet. The next picture is of grieving inhabitants. I think I do need to read um, verse 10 to you. Let me just uh, quickly look it up. This is chapter 12, verse 10. When all this trouble comes and they grieve, it says, then I will pour out the spirit of grace and prayer on all the people of Jerusalem and they will look on him whom they pierced and mourn for him as for an only son and grieve for, bitterly for him as for an oldest child who died. 
The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem at that time will be even greater than the grievous mourning for the godly king Josiah who was killed in the valley of Megiddo. All of Israel will weep in profound sorrow. That hasn't come yet, but there'll come a day when the people of Jerusalem are so desperate at last they will not try and make peace treaties with Palestinians or anyone else. They'll cry to God. And the answer, they'll see him whom they pierced. Can you imagine how the Jews will feel when they realize that Jesus was their Messiah and they killed him? They will weep as if their oldest son had been murdered. Amazing, isn't it? Multiply the grief of Dunblane by the grief of Jerusalem in that day. Now it's Zechariah who says they will actually see him whom they pierced. And in fact, that very phrase is taken up in the first chapter of the book of Revelation, where it says, When Jesus comes back, they will those who pierced him will see him. And the only thing needed to convert a Jew is the is to know that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. That was all it took for Saul of Tarsus. And I found it's all that it takes today. I was preaching in, in Cambridgeshire and there was a Jewess of about 25 years of age, very smart girl, in the congregation. And afterwards she said, could I talk to you? We went into the vestry of this little Methodist church and she said, are you trying to tell me that Jesus of Nazareth is still alive? I said, yes. She said, then he must be our Messiah, our Messiah. I felt quite out of it. <laughs> and she said, how could I find out if he's alive? I said, you could try talking to him. I left her talking to him and she found out. And within 10 minutes she was teaching me the Bible. She showed me from the Old Testament, then this and this and this, and she saw it all in a flash. She'd got it all there except for the one vital clue that Jesus was the name. And when she found out Jesus was alive, that was it. And when the whole nation sees him whom they pierced, I have no difficulty believing they'll all be converted, but they'll weep their way to faith. Looking back on 2,000 wasted years, when they could have been leading the world, and they'd been hounded from one country to another, as the book of Deuteronomy said they would be. No wonder they'll weep. Can't you see it? And it's all there in Zechariah. The grieving inhabitants of Jerusalem. Next, the banished prophets. He vividly sees that false prophets have been one of the greatest dangers Jerusalem ever had and that Jerusalem is going to be cleansed of all such people. It says they will be cleansed of sin and washed from all impurity by a fountain of water. And this is taken up by Paul in Romans 11. When Paul says, then all Israel shall be saved, he goes on to talk about Zion being cleansed from sin. And the false prophets then will be so ashamed and so disgraced, they will disown their profession. They will say, I'm not a prophet. I got these wounds in a friendly brawl. <laughs> it's, it's so amusing because prophets will be wounded. I'm not a prophet. I just was in a fight. 
it's a vivid story of people ashamed of having given false teaching. The next picture is of a reduced population. Now this passage is a bit of a misfit, it's not in order quite clearly, but it's of a Jerusalem that has been reduced to between half and one-third of its population. It's, it's a throwback to that uh, shepherd-smitten and sheep-scattered one. I frankly have to say I'm not quite sure where this fits, if it's future or past to us, where two-thirds of the population will be wiped out. I don't know. It's one of those I have a wait-and-see attitude towards. But in chapter 14 we are back to this international attack on Jerusalem and I believe that is future to us and uh, we still have to see this city attacked by a United Nations force. God will gather this huge military force and yet he will also fight for them. It is clearly linked closely to the second coming and probably to the battle of Armageddon because here we have the statement, and his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Now God can't do that, he hasn't got feet, but Jesus could. And uh, this is interpreted by all Jews as the coming of the Messiah, and his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. I have some close links with artists in uh, Israel, they seem to be the most prophetic people and the ones with the clearest vision of the future. And one art artist, uh, Motka, I have a very close association with him, and he sent me one of his pictures, a print of one of his latest pictures. It's, it's looking at the Mount of Olives, it's a kind of purple picture, and the temple area is in the foreground, and then up in the sky there's a kind of yellow glow just coming into the picture. There's, there, there must be a very bright light just above the picture, and you can see the glow in the dark sky coming through and uh, he didn't need to explain it to me but he said uh, that's the glory of the Messiah appearing over the Mount of Olives. <laughs> I wish I'd brought it to show you but uh, I should have thought of it. Well his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and it says then there will be a great eruption which will cause amazing geophysical changes to the whole area. In particular, one of the changes, I assume we have to take it literally, though it boggles the imagination, whereas Jerusalem is down in a hollow surrounded by mountains, in fact you know the Dome of the Rock, it's uh, an octagon with eight sides, each side looks directly to a peak. There are eight peaks around Jerusalem, it's an amazing geometrical landscape. Uh, the east face of the Dome of the Rock faces the Mount of Olives, the northeast faces Mount Scopus, and so you can go around. South faces the Mount of uh, Condemnation, or what is the... Anyway, if ever you go, stand with your back to each of those eight walls and you're looking at a peak. But it says in that day when his feet stand on the Mount of Olives, the peaks will shake and go down and Jerusalem will be left on the peak. That's when everybody will go up to the Mount of the Lord. It's an astonishing picture. Jerusalem will at last be the high place and the place you can see from miles away, which you can't. You can't see Jerusalem at all until you come up over the lip of the rim of hills around Jerusalem. You can't see it from a distance. It's down in the hollow, but then it'll be lifted up because the hills will drop 
and there will be a way of escape to the east, a great open valley, the Mount of Olives opening up into a wide valley. Well, it's all part of the picture. Our imagination finds it quite difficult to fit it all in. But the main point of this picture is that that United Nations force around the city will be dealt with. Those who've come to attack Jerusalem, the final battle, will be held. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths and in panic they will kill each other. Well, we're dealing with supernatural events. But after all this picture, guess what it says? Then you will know. Then you will know. It's certainly apocalyptic. And finally, there's a picture of after that, all the nations seeing Jerusalem as the place of God's name. Furthermore, there's a picture of all the nations of the world observing one of the Jewish feasts, the Feast of Tabernacles. Not Pentecost, not Passover, but a picture of all the nations of the world coming, sending representatives to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Isn't that fascinating? See, it's the one feast Christians ignore. Tragically, we observe Passover, in a sense, with Easter, we observe Pentecost with Whitsunday, but tabernacles? For the Jew, that's the greatest feast, the biggest, the best. It's a celebration. It's their harvest festival. It's the finest harvest home, the final harvest home. And the Jews celebrate it. They live in little booths open to the sky so they can see the stars. And they remember how God brought them through the wilderness, but they celebrate it. It's an eight-day feast and the final day is a wedding day. Funnily enough, they get married to the law and there's a wedding canopy and a rabbi with a scroll of the law of Moses stands under the canopy and they all dance around and they get married to the law of Moses for another year and they start reading Genesis 1-1 the next morning and they read through until they read the last verse in Deuteronomy 12 months later. Then they get married to the law again. But they've got the wrong bridegroom because that eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to the marriage supper of the Messiah, the marriage supper of the Lamb. My wife and I had a great privilege. Our silver wedding was on the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the marriage of the Messiah and we were in Israel and we celebrated it with 1,200 other people down in the wilderness of Judea at night and we had a feast and there was a huge bonfire and a pillar of fire by night and we ate roast quails. And I went to a little shop in a back street in Jerusalem that morning and asked a little Jew to make me a ring that she wanted to give me. And you can come and see the ring. It's the wall of Jerusalem on the ring and on the top, David, DVD, backwards, David. She gave it to me to remind me to be a watchman on the wall. And that was the 25th, the marriage day. See, it's got to be a marriage for you. You're all going to be married. I was talking in a school to some children and I said, a little boy asked me a question, why wasn't Jesus married? I said, it's all right, he's going to be. <laughs> and afterwards the headmaster in his office said, what were you teaching my children? He said, What's this about Jesus getting married? I said, don't you know your Bible? I said, the whole Bible is a romance. It's how a father found a bride for his son. 
and it finishes up and they get married and live happily ever after. All good romances finish with a marriage and there it is. See? So this is the eighth day of this feast and this is referred to in Revelation as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Did you know that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles? The clues are all there in Luke's Gospel. He was born in September or early October in the seventh month, which is the month of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And in John 7, his brother said, aren't you going to the Feast of Tabernacles? That's when they're expecting the Messiah. And they didn't believe him and they were teasing him. And he said, my time has not yet come. Therefore, of one thing I feel quite sure, and that is I know the month when Jesus will come back. I don't know the year but he must come back on time. It'll be in the Feast of Tabernacles. It says from, actually every Jew on the basis of Zechariah 14 believes that the Messiah will come during the Feast of Tabernacles. They have no doubt about it. And all this seems to have missed Christians thinking. But uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, one day we'll all go to Jerusalem. Your first free flight to the Holy Land. <laughs> because we're all gathering for it. And from then on, nations will celebrate that feast annually and send representatives to Jerusalem. And it says if they don't, they will get no rain. That of course doesn't affect Egypt because they don't get any rain anyway. They get their water from the Nile. So it says that for Egypt, if they don't come, they'll have a plague. But other nations won't get rain. But the Feast of Tabernacles has become for Jew and now for an increasing number of Christians a focal point of the hope for a universal reign of the Messiah over the whole world. And uh, the last time I went to the Christian Feast of Tabernacles, to which many hundreds go each year in Jerusalem, I walked down the street and I went to the vast paved area opposite the western wall and there was a huge marquee. And I went inside and Jewish families were seated at tables eating and they were happy and above them was a huge banner and on the banner were all the different nationalities coming up different roads and Jerusalem was isolated on a high mountain and they were all coming up. And then I walked back up the road to where the Christians had their Feast of Tabernacles and I saw a huge banner and here was Jerusalem on the top of a high mountain and all the nations of the world in different costumes and colours coming up the roads. I thought, ditto. <laughs> Deja vu, I've seen this before. And gradually through the Feast of Tabernacles, Jews and Christians are coming to a closer understanding of the hopes of the future. They're all based on Zechariah 14. Well, these are all little bits and pieces of the future. And now we are in a position to begin to fit them into the whole picture. I can't fit them all in yet because I don't think they've all happened yet. But as these things happen, you see before your very eyes, God's purposes being fulfilled. As we heard in the reading this morning, God has a purpose for the whole world and it's going to happen. Jesus is coming back to reign and we shall reign with him. Lord, they asked him when Jesus went back to his father, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? He says, not for you to know the times and the dates that Father has fixed. Which means Father has fixed the date. But he says, you get on and be my witnesses to the ends of the world. Because I want as many people there as possible. 
as he said in one parable about the Heavenly Father, my house shall be full. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.